Welcome to a special edition of Wavemaker Talks Black and Proud podcast. I'm Michelle Watson-Hill, Growth Director at Wavemaker UK, and I will be your host for today's Wavemaker Roots Candid Conversations Reloaded. Today we will be talking to our panel about what they have observed, learned and experienced over the last few months since the Black Lives Matter movement was catapulted to the forefront of society, throughout media and within the workplace. Our panel all refer to themselves as allies and today's conversation is to explore their personal experiences. So excited to hear from them all today. Panellists, please introduce yourselves. I'm Camilla, Camilla Brigan. I work in the Worldwide Group and I've got two titles there. Um, I'm the Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion, so that's a new role. And I'm also jointly head up the Data Insight team, so I've got kind of two different roles. And a bit about me, so I'm obviously white, white British, um, and I grew up in North London. I grew up in a very kind of liberal, um, quite multiracial upbringing in an area and going to very mixed schools as well. That's me. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Izzy. I work in um, the client leadership team in Wavemaker North in Manchester. Bit of background on me. My parents are from Hong Kong, um, but I was born in Brighton, which is where I grew up probably one of the hippiest cities in the UK. <laughs> so again, fairly liberal. And I've been in Manchester for seven years now, which is also very multicultural and diverse. So good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's James Edgar. I'm the Global Chief People Officer for Wavemaker. Um, in terms of my background, um, some people may not realise, but I'm actually half Japanese. So my mother's Japanese, my dad's English. I was born in Japan and lived there for the first kind of three years. Oh, no, I don't remember much of it. Uh, and I've moved around. So I've been in uh, the UK for most of my life, but I also lived in Denmark as well. Uh, and also moving around the UK. So I've kind of experienced various different cities uh, to live in as well. And that's me. Great. Thanks, James. And last but not least, we have Mu. Hi everyone, I'm Moo. I work in the growth team uh, in the UK. My parents are from Bangladesh or um, East Pakistan as it was known then. So they came over here in the aftermath of a bloody civil war in uh, the early 70s. So I grew up here initially in Reading, but I've spent most of my life in Croydon. So let's kick things off with the first question being to the panel. What has been the most interesting or thought-provoking piece of content you have consumed regarding race over the last six months? If you could please also impress upon us why that was interesting. I found the most interesting piece of content I've read the last few months is um, a book called Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad. I mean, initially, I'm not going to lie, the title put me off massively because a, I, I don't see myself as a supremacist. I think most people wouldn't. You wouldn't. That word instantly terrifies me. And also white supremacy. Um, I was like, I'm not white. Um, what, I still picked it up anyway. Um, and what was really interesting about this book is that it's, I think it's very easy to say I'm not racist. I think most people would say you're not racist, but it's, it, this book really delves into kind of the the specifics on racist thoughts, microaggressions, and gives really clear examples. And then you realise actually, yeah, I do think racist things, but you just don't label it as racist. So, for example, uh, white saviorism, um, 
with this idea that we're out to save anyone, any countries who are black, if you think like missionaries and um, even like volunteering um, on gap years, it's always to Africa or um, Asian countries. That, that There is a level of racism in that because there are people in this country also need help, but why do we instantly think to these countries as being inferior to us. So it's those kind of really specific things and nuances within racism that made me think, yeah, it's not that easy to say I'm not racist. It's so ingrained in us that um, it really helped unpick my own behaviours and thought patterns. Um, And then on the white thing, I think racism isn't about white versus black or anything. I am not white. I have had my own racist experiences towards me, but I can equally be racist towards black people or other races just as much and uh, um, that was a a real you know learning curve for me kind of like um, you know it's not just about white people being racist we can all be racist and uh, yeah I have things to learn as much as anyone. I think that's really important Izzy to to talk about Uh, certainly from my community, the the Bengali community and the Asian community, I can't speak for everyone, but if I I speak for my family and and myself, you know, we, there is definite racism between Asian and black. Uh, You know, we can get, I'll come on to talk a little bit about that later on, but there is very much a feeling of the Asians being very demure, but not standing up in the same way that maybe the black community has done. And I think there is a tension there between that. But we can talk about that a bit later. Both very interesting points there, guys. Thank you. Camilla and James, is there anything that you can share about any content you've consumed? So I've got a couple of, a few things. I've, I've really read and watched lots of different things over the last few months. I mean, over the last few years, but especially the last few months. And there's a couple of things that stood out. Is Good Trouble series on iPlayer that's really fun. It's a really good to kind of about cool young people living in this amazing apartment in LA. So it's a really easy watching. It's good. But it's also got a Black Lives Matter storyline going through it, going through the two series. And it's a really sympathetic, really in-depth look at the Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of life of an activist and the role of other people can do to sue to support activists. And the series producers worked with Patrice, Patrice Colours, who's one of the founders of Black Lives matters she was a consultant in the first series and actually played herself and in the second series she got much more involved and she wrote a couple and directed some of the episodes and it it's really interesting it deals with the kind of prejudice of of black people but also white people's response to it and white fragility and it's the first time I've seen that done in a really sympathetic non-judgmental way and so the white people's journey was just as interesting as the black people's and it's a very intersectional approach so there were people who were sympathetic characters who were quite conservative in the show and there was a lot of open discussion and discourse which I I felt I learned loads from and it was really you know fun and enjoyable my other thing that's had a big impact on me is a Carla's book about natives and the British empire and it's much more challenging book. It actually sat on my bookshelf for about six months. And I hadn't really wanted to read it, partly because my own family history is, I know, a colonial one. My grandfather was a colonist from Sri Lanka, a Dutch colonist, and that's how I have the name Bruggen. Um, it's a long time since any family was actually in, in Holland. So it's a really challenging polemic on about the British Empire and how our history and I think I grew up 
have a feeling that Britain was Great Britain and we'd kind of spread wonderful things around the world of democracy and justice and this kind of paternalistic kindness. And it really made me think, hmm, that's not quite right. A lot of things were brushed under the carpet and we didn't colonize the world by kind of kindness and peace. It was actually pretty violent and a lot of atrocities. So it was a really good book, but very challenging to me to read as as well. And and he, Akala, I mean, he's so clever. He's so articulate. It's pretty impossible to disagree with anything that he says. Yeah, and I think for me, kind of building on Camilla's piece, uh, Camilla mentioned white fragility. So I've read the book uh, that Robin D'Angelo had written about that. And I just thought it was a really interesting to take, to kind of take the angle from a white perspective and actually see how it is vested in you know institutional processes and actions and how it shows up which becomes a much more complex and subtle way of reinforcing some of this and i thought there was a, a vlog on uh, linkedin that john amiechi the ex-basketball player who's doing a lot of work around this mm. and he talked about privilege and it was probably one of the few things i thought really kind of landed incredibly well but very eloquently put but again from a flip side of what's it mean uh, from a white perspective versus um, black, and then and then the kind of third one for me was really um, I watched um, I'm Not Your Negro, uh, and I've kind of watched it a couple of times, and it struck me um, one it was a beautiful piece of filmmaking, and with the kind of following of James Baldwin, who I thought was incredibly articulate against a backdrop that you know was very um, probably not progressive in this field, but for him to kind of make that argument, I think I grew up learning about uh, Martin Luther King and the pacifism movement and, and seeing that come through in his own words. And then actually sadly looking at where we are today and the parallels of what he describes in the 60s to some of the stuff that we're seeing today with Black Lives Matter, some of the election that we're seeing in, in the US and race being part of the, the kind of mantra in, in the election fodder. It's quite sad to see actually, you know, there has been movement, but has there been enough movement? And, and I thought that was really quite provocative. Thank you for sharing there. Mu, is there anything that you wanted to add? So I think where I've been focusing and fascinated by, and it may seem like um, a cop-out, but the area where I've been looking at is language and words and phrases. I think that's where my uh, I've really been sort of opened my eyes in terms of the phrases that we, uh, or certainly that I, from my generation, have casually been throwing out into conversation in the agency, in, in, in both in, in life and work, it's really made me think about not just checking yourself, but actually really kind of exploring the meanings of phrases that we use in everyday vernacular. So um, you may have seen recently that, you know, BBC sport presenters have gone on some training courses around phrases that were quite uh, appropriate in terms of quite, quite used in terms of players, um, in terms of power and pace often used to describe black footballers, for example, you know, phrases that we, I should know better. So, you know, being sold down the river, nitty gritty, those kind of phrases. So language has really been the focus for me. I guess that's because I feel in the debate and in the conversation about from a cultural and and kind of, if you like, entertainment and literature perspective, but I've really been focusing on words that that's really been the focus for me over the last sort of 
you know, five to six months. Yeah, it's very interesting you say that. I definitely, coming from a coaching background as well, there's a phrase that my trainer used to always use, which is that words create worlds and that there there is power in words. And for me, something that I saw most recently that I'd just like to share in relation to this is the thought of referring to people as slaves and that we shouldn't actually call them slaves, we should call them the enslaved because giving them the branding, the term of slave is kind of defining that person as that's all they are. It wasn't a choice. They didn't go into a job like we would all introduce ourselves Mm. with our job titles. It's very different. You know, we applied for the job. We're happy to do the job. That's not the case here. They were enslaved people. And I found that to be quite powerful. So it's really interesting that you bring up those points as well. I definitely think those are things for us to ponder, learn and understand a bit more. Moving on to the next question. How have you found having challenging conversations around race with people in your lives? And are there any tips that you could give to on how to actually broach those conversations? I personally, at the beginning, found it really difficult. I think I think everyone was like uncertain how to navigate everything. And I, I was saying to the panelists before this, I was like, I am absolutely terrified about this conversation because I'm so scared of saying something wrong. And I think people were, we were all navigating that at the same time with absolutely like no guidance on what to do, what to say in the situation. So I, I think when this, when Black Lives Matter first kind of came to the forefront earlier this year it was very tense between a lot of people in my life I found um it's got easier because people you know it's got a bit easier because you've had your arguments you've fallen out you you navigate it you learn from it I think that added on to that I I do think I found it extra hard because people weren't sure how to navigate my race around the conversation it's like an added layer of uh and I might be wrong um, some, someone correct me who knows me if that's the case um, but I did feel like my race was getting in the way of talking about black lives um, it's got easier and um, my team in the Manchester office had great sessions where we um, we all listened to a podcast together and then we'd come together and talk about uh, what happened in the podcast I hope some of my team are here but I do think that um, that makes it easier to talk about race because if you're talking about a show or a content or something in the com- at least the conversation isn't as heated you're talking about something like you know a piece of content and then conversation naturally flowed from there and often we talked about the podcast for about five minutes and then spent half an hour talking about something else so i do find that helps with conversations documentaries if you start a conversation like a documentary or a podcast or a book um it's a lot less heated than just kind of jumping in um, that that would be my tip yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with Izzy, actually. I think when I think about this and, and even, you know, similar to preparing for this panel, I think often the anticipation is worse than the actual reality. Um, and I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Brené Brown, who talks about shame. And actually, some of this is anchored in shame, whether it's the shame of not really knowing or it's the shame of, you know, kind of having a what could be a difficult conversation. So when I reflect back, sometimes actually just having the conversation has been quite lifting um, just to kind of get it out there. And I think we're all learning. I mean, one of the things I think Black Lives Matters did do was create a sense of movement, but also help in education that people probably didn't realise they needed until it mm. happened. And, and I think there is a real danger that you could almost look, take a step back and look at very generalised ways of describing stuff. So we put people into groups and we talk about the group in a very homogenous way and we lose sight of the individual um and so for me i think it's actually sometimes actually just 
have that kind of leap of faith to have the conversation with good intent. I think there's something about how skillful you are in, in doing that and you can't add to your skill without doing it and trying it. And I think there's also something about don't lose the person in this. So what I find is, you know, a lot of people will say to me, you don't get it because you're white. Um, and that is an assumption and, and a grouping of me that isn't true. And it suddenly makes it feel quite adversarial because you put me into a, into a grouping against another grouping. So there's something in this about actually how do we kind of come together and, and, and get a bit more comfortable with the uncomfortable conversation, knowing that actually the output is going to be much more beneficial. You know, there are things that people will do that probably they don't understand might have an impact, but we'll never know that until we have those types yeah. of conversations. And I think it's actually how do you raise it so it's visible rather than have the shame of it being stuck in the darkness and, and not raising it and kind of worrying and making it worse, really. Yeah, and I think also like when you're having these conversations, I think it's okay to admit that you're unsure about something. So, you know, when um, people say, I really don't know how to word this, like, or I don't know if this is the wrong way to say something. I, I think there's no shame in saying that none of us know what's going on at the mm. moment. Like none of mm. us know what's right and what's not. If you admit that you don't know something, there's no shame in that. And there's also, you know, I think people need to be quite forgiving if people do say the wrong thing. It's not a jump down your throat and say, how dare you say that. It's we're all learning. We room for forgiveness and learning in these conversations. Yeah. I think that's so true, is it? It really is. And I think what's been good recently is there's so many different things that we can learn from. And so, and I find I've had quite different conversations. So conversations in mixed groups and what's been interesting is there is kind of the black friends in those groups have been sharing a lot of different information. One of the things that I found great around conversations was by Emmanuel Acho, who's an NFL player and now a sports commentator in the States. And he did a whole series of videos called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And they were really good. Like people asked very frank questions. There's been so many different conversations and James you were talking about James Baldwin and I read one of his essays and it was saying about he doesn't know what white people talk about when they're together and I think those have been my most interesting conversations probably because there's been loads of very constructive conversations but I've also have to admit that I've been in situations with friends or you know, with, with friends who have said kind of slightly subtly racist things against Black Lives Matter. And I think in the past, I might have thought, well, I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to cause any problems here. But now I have felt much more it's my duty to speak up and to challenge them and have that conversation with them and talk to them about Black Lives Matter doesn't mean white lives doesn't matter. I mean, you shouldn't be having to have this conversation, but I have had it the last six months. You know, I'm proud to say that I think I've been a bit braver and and adopted that position more and really felt strongly as well. So as a feminist, it's sometimes I felt like where are the male voices in feminism? And then I think as an anti-racist, it's important there are white voices. Like, why should it just the burden be on people of colour to be to stop racism when they're not the ones often, you know, usually being racist anyway? So my conversations have changed quite a lot, I think. I think for me, I've got it wrong every single day and I'm still getting it wrong. So I wouldn't even say I'm crawling in this space. I'm dragging myself along the floor um 
And I think that's kind of happened in the sort of three areas I can point to on that. The first area was the opportunity to talk with the team I work with. I got that completely and utterly wrong. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with Rochelle and we I listened to the the strain, the stress, the emotion and the power of that situation you know, on her quite right recommendation that we decided to replay that conversation uh, and talk some more instead of it being very much like, here's a thing, let's talk about it and sort of almost give people no preparation for that, which I think was completely and utterly insensitive from from my point of view. I think the second thing was is around uh, friends and family. So picking back up on what Izzy and I were talking about up front, around the tensions between not just white and black, but different cultures, different uh, colours and different creeds. Um, that certainly, I've certainly experienced that with you know, my own family, friends. So, you know, friends, uh, not white uh, friends, but sending me posts like uh, Black Olives Matter. Is it too soon to say this? And, uh, you know, I, I, I play for a cricket team, which is predominantly over a certain age and a certain kind of background. It is quite uh, aggressive and, you know, the posts are always sent in jest, but they're, they're, mm. you know, there's definitely not a there's definitely not jest here. And then I think with my own family and us, there's, you know, um, given um, uh, what my my parents have been through uh, and, and a lot of people's pet, right? Not not just but, but but, you know, that personal experience has played back into conversations. Uh, and, then, and then I think that the third way is probably how I've experienced some conversations happening in the wider agency or the conversations that I've heard. So, you know, I've heard the phrase that, you know, there's a burning building and we need to sort that one out first before, you know, the rest of the street catches fire. And I think, you know, that's where it starts to reflect back on your own experience and this tension around Asians being, you know, certainly my experience of from us first generation British Asian being very demure and accepting situations the way they are and making it feel like we're not. And, and as Camilla said and James said earlier and, and, and Izzy, we're not part of the the wider conversation. You know, the, the simple fact is this is an important issue, you know, massively important to the back community. But it's it's for everyone everyone this is not a a moment in time this is not something that that will just be a trend this is not something that that we will look at as may 2020 this is now the way we have to we are we will be we live the sooner we realize that as a as a community of people and that sounds a bit rose tinted but as a community of people the better that is and that means seeing everybody seeing every seeing everybody and again i've had comments like i don't see that you know i don't look at color and i don't see color actually you need to you need to thank you guys that's very very interesting and thought-provoking there so what biases have you challenged yourself to review since so we had like the wave maker training we've had the push and the drive from the business to engaging more content have those discussions um on the matter began so what biases have you challenged for yourself i think building on what um Mo just said about we have to see color i think i i mean this is ironic because i'm not white um but i uh the whole colour blindness thing totally 
totally did that. Like I would never I would never point out my own race. Um, and I think in a in a fantasy world where everyone's equal, treated equally, equal opportunities, um, yeah, it would be great to not see race or colour. It would just be like another thing, like hair colour, wouldn't it? And it's very easy to bury your head in the sand and kind of go, yeah, we are treated all the same because I don't see race. Um, but the reality of it is it's not. Um, that isn't the case at the moment. So we do have to see race to make sure that we can have more equal opportunities and equal lives. So I just, um, I mean, some of the stats, I'm sure everyone's seen stats, you know, around like maternity, um, poverty, any of pay gaps, like it's absolutely everywhere. The stats speak for themselves that they're not great. <laughs> so until the stats get better, I think um, I've really had to challenge myself to not ignore that, yeah, people are from different backgrounds with different skin colours and they are treated differently. And that's something we need to correct. But we can't correct it if we pretend it's not happening. There was a really good something I heard actually about COVID yesterday. And it's saying we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. And I think that applies very much if you think about it to race as well. So it's made me, in terms of my biases, much more aware of my own white privilege and actually how, especially probably through my career and coming into the my career how I I was aware of it and I I don't think I consciously thought this is great but I realized my path was quite smooth in in some ways and it I guess it's been made me like less colorblind and a bit more aware of the different experiences other people have because of their skin color yeah and I think I think from for me I think it's probably done two things one is probably validate something I've already known in the sense of it's really important just to kind of keep the education going and it's not there's an end state to that it's a really mm. dynamic dynamic world we live in and, and as a result things will move on and I think it's incumbent on us to do that I think in the role that I play there is also a separation of what's my role as someone in Wavemaker and what's my role leading a function in Wavemaker and so there's something about how I show up and then also how do we make sure that we're a bit more thoughtful around trying to keep the momentum going and actually make change. Mm. You know, one of the things I think that really kind of came out from this was this is a really emotional topic that people will lean into as long as they feel safe. And so as a company, I think there's something about how we create that psychological safety mm. that we can have that debate. And some of that is going beyond words. It's actually kind of hardwiring it into the, some of the things that we do. So, you know, some of the exercises that we've looked at and we're globally launching some initiatives with, you know, leaders uh, we've launched our global dni framework and we've been really thoughtful to do a couple of things one is in there you will hear a lot of our listen and so how do we really dial up that employee voice and the mechanisms to really talk about that mm-hmm. and then think about you know the education that comes with that and then the act which i think is really important i think that's one of the kind of key you know resounding things from the black lives matters piece is you know it hasn't been from the one of people raising it it's just a lack of action that kind of perpetuates perpetuates the issue and i think there's things that we can do to really get people and and given our you know central attitude of positive provocation is actually how do we provoke ourselves in this space right so you know when we think about our networks how diverse are our networks and it's all well and good to come onto a panel and say you know i'm an ally but actually if you go back into a network that perpetuates it it feels a bit hollow and so you know 
in the leadership stuff that we're doing, we're actually really now calling out, you know, look at your networks, how diverse are they? We're looking at processes that are saying, are we giving good representation to all our staff? And are we really thinking about diversity and making sure that we aren't kind of perpetuating biases that are sitting under the surface? So I think for me, it's been how do we hardwire some of that into some of the processes so they show up more every day rather than it's just a, a topic that we can kind of come in and out of. And I think the other the other thing that I found a real challenge is sitting on a global level. One of the dangers, I think, in a very traditional view is we need to find something that works across everywhere. And that won't work, actually. What we need to do is find a framework that allows some of that difference to kind of bubble up and understand how we do it. But there are different issues maybe facing an APAC region to a Western Europe and a, an American issue. And they're not, they're not hierarchy. They're important to those people in those markets. So how do we find a balance that doesn't actually almost quell that, that kind of brings that mm. to a fore, but has some sense of global connectivity? And, and I think we're getting there with our, our framework. We've kind of launched that. But, you know, actually the hard work starts now. We've, we've got the framework. Mm. Now now we need to kind of embed it. Um, it's not about having it. It's about using it. Absolutely. We need to make sure everybody is on board with that. And it's amazed. I'm being, you know, I've been doing a lot of that recently the last few months and even though diversity and inclusion is something I'm working at I'm incredibly passionate about there's always so much to learn. I think in terms of the question I look at it in in my life as three this is the third phase for me so the first phase of my life was all around trying to be white right in the 70s and 80s desperately wanted to be white and to be accepted by the nation that was my uh, home, where I was born. And I felt I got there on the 1st of September 2001 when England beat Germany 5-1. And I was dancing on the top of Nelson's Column, feeling never more part of my country. Ten days later, that changed completely. So for me, 9-11 was a massive, massive influence on my life and was the point at which I realized I would never be part of this country, ever. Um, and that's why you need to see color. And we need to see this country's color as, as co you know, color throughout, because that is what makes up the beauty, the fantastic beauty of this country. And I still love this country, even though I, I'm not convinced this country loves me back. But the third stage now, having been through a very personal situation where I had the police called on me uh, 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 and I felt that, you know, if you are with a white person, uh, that there will be, a, a, you know, an issue there uh, with the police. I have looked at this phase as a real reassessment of what I'm doing. And I've come to the conclusion I'm a racist. I have. The challenge now is at a stage of our life, my life, of, of generally of people's lives where you get stuck in your ways is to now through the spirit of, you know, uh, and I really do. And this is not drinking the Kool-Aid. You know, I really love the spirit and the attitude that we have within Wavemaker of positive provocation. But we need to we need to be able to empower everybody, everybody and that is difficult when you're in the structures of WPP and Group M. You know, Tony Hall talks about the right to speak that has taken two and a half years and they're still not there within the BBC of, of being able to speak up about things that are a challenge and are, uh, you know, and are uh, uh, an issue. 
I hope and I think we've got a great platform to do that. It's great to see that Wavemakers launched a podcast, right, for a start. But I love the Wavemaker Talks uh, series that's going on at the moment. And it's just been fantastic to just to listen, as James said earlier and Camilla said earlier, listen to what people are saying. There are lots of cultural elements out there, right? Um, and I'm not just bringing it back to the agency, but it's a great, it's something that makes me feel like uh, my company is is looking at this and I have to look at this as well. Thank you guys so much. Just before we wrap up, the last question is, and if we can keep this one short and snappy, in what ways can people be an ally to the black community? You know, listen and have those open conversations with the people who are different from you. Check your circle. Are all, do all your friends look like you? Come from the same background, everyone you meet. Just put yourself out there and I, I think and, and ask people. I also think that um, if you want to be a day-to-day -day ally, I really think people need to look into microaggressions like day-to-day -day ones because those are exhausting for people to have to deal with every single day. Um, so yeah, look into those um, and make sure you build it into your day-to-day -day life because it starts with the little things. I think the only ad I'd have is, you know, I think you have to be active in this space as well. You know, I think we're, we're at a point where we need to make a shift and we've, we're starting to work on some of that infrastructure, but we need everyone to play their part. Uh, and I think, you know, if there's something that doesn't sound right, we need to call it. If there's something we need to go and learn or we need to go and take the time to listen to someone else, go do it. Uh, I think we as an agency kind of owe it to each other to do that. And I think it's now to become active rather than passive in this. I really agree. And, and, and I would just add, see colour because it's beautiful. And I think you know, see it. Let's not be where I've been before about or other people have been in terms of not seeing colour. Let's see colour because it's so important and race and creed because it's so important to the variety and the beauty that makes up people. Fantastic, guys. I think that we could have spoken for hours on end here. And I think you all had really, really valid points and things that I'm sure everyone listening to can definitely relate. So I just want to say a huge, huge thank you to Wavemaker Roots for putting this session together and asking me to host. It's been an absolute honour. Thank you to everyone that's joined us. And if you have any questions or afterthoughts, please feel free to reach out to Wavemaker Roots at any time. This conversation is clearly far from over and we are all part of creating a more inclusive culture at Wavemaker. So let's keep learning, understanding and supporting one another. Thank you, everyone.